In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And after what you've gone through, if you haven't done that by now, it ain't gonna never happen. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. My guest this episode is Katie Knight, the first woman to play in and score points in an NCAA Division I football game. She's also the only person I know who played varsity football for four years in high school and was voted homecoming queen. Katie and I talk about the highs and lows of her experience being a pioneer in college football, including the sexual assault and rape she endured while at the University of Colorado and her success on and off the field at the University of New Mexico and her advocacy work on violence against women. Here we go. Welcome, Katie and Ida. How are you? Hey, Gabe. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great, relatively speaking. Thank you for coming on. I have to say that when I created this podcast, you were on the short list of people that I wanted to be on the pod. And I've wanted you on ever since I started. Now, keep in mind, that was only six months ago. But this is exciting for me to have you on because you have a remarkable story that I think many people either don't know or have forgotten about. And your name popped up again in the media when Sarah Fuller made some history with Vanderbilt. But I think a lot of people don't realize that you made that history before Sarah did. We'll get into that. But thank you for being here. And I want to start towards the beginning, and then we can get into your college career and what has followed. But I really want to hear more about how you decided to become a football kicker. I know there was a a soccer career when you were younger and then an injury, and you've said that you love kicking footballs. But I always think of the quote that Jason Elam gave, and I know you have talked to Jason Elam and, and he gave you some advice, but he had said that kicking is hours and hours of boredom surrounded by a few seconds of panic. And that's not, you know, when somebody describes something like that, that's not, oh, I really want to do that. Tell me how you Uh, got into it and why you liked kicking football so much. Oh, my gosh. That is a fantastic quote from Jason. I do actually fall, though, on the an opposite side. I actually love to go out and kick footballs for hours. It's like a meditational thing for me, something good for me to go and like a stress relief or anything I do. I love to be able to go, just be able to go kick no matter what kind of mood I'm in. And I think I, uh, you know, benefited from that a lot in high school and college when you've got these long practices and you do, you get five minutes live with the team and then you've got an hour and 45 minutes on your own. But so starting, gosh, starting back at the beginning for me, I grew up absolutely loving football. Just during that time period, we're talking about the early 90s. It really wasn't a big option for a females. You didn't see girls out there on little league teams or anything like that. I was out one night and was in our backyard with my dad, and my brother. I've got uh, three younger siblings and we were all athletes. So there was there, we were always doing something out there in the backyard. And on one, this particular night, we were tossing the football around and it hit the ground. And for some reason, I just decided to prop it up in the grass and give it a little kick. And it happened to go like 20 yards over my dad's head. <laughs> and he he chased after it and then was like, holy cow, Gabe, like that was pretty good. Do you think you'd do that again? So I was like, sure, no big deal. I just 
kick the football. And I was in the process of, I had had an injury to my left quad that was causing issues in my soccer career with all the planting and cutting, but didn't seem to affect it when I was planting my foot to just kick a football. And as it happened, the very next week, I happened to be in our, I was in junior high and there was a flyer that I came across in our school office about if you wanted to play high school football, there was going to be a meeting that afternoon. On a whim, I decided to go for it. And that's kind of how it all all began. And I'm sure two things. One, it sounds like from a movie, it's like the beginning of The Natural or something, where you just stumble on a football, Mm -hmm. you were able to kick it really far. And your dad says, wait a minute. And then two, when you get to that meeting, I assume I know the answer to this, but were there any other females in the room? No. And actually, it's a hilarious story because I get into the room and it is packed. I was thinking I could just stand in the back and hide. And there was no way I was going to be able to do that. Or I was going to get pushed out the door. There was, however, a seat literally dead center in the middle of the room. And I was like, oh, God. So I screwed up every little ounce of courage that I had in my 13-year-old self and went and tried to discreetly make my way to that chair. And I had just gotten there when all of a sudden this big booming voice comes out and says, hey, little lady, are you lost? Are you looking for the girls lacrosse meeting? And it was the man who would be my first varsity head coach, who was this just, he was a football guy. He was from Oklahoma, so he had a really strong accent. And I, the entire room went quiet after he said that. And, oh God, I must have turned 50 shades of purple. And I managed to squeak out. I said, no, sir, I'm here for football. And the entire room just erupts in laughter and whispers and whatever. And the coach, his name was uh, Bob Beatty. He holds up his hands and he says, hey, now it's the 90s. And uh, I sat down and had no idea that this man would end up being one of the most important people in my life. Yeah, that's great. That's incredible. And then what was the reaction like as you get more involved and you're on the team? How did the your teammates react and, and others? Was, was there any additional pushback to try to keep you off the team? No. And it's interesting because maybe the worst thing that happened to me was walking out of that meeting. Some guy like was like, why did she even come? And he ended up being my backup kicker that year on the freshman squad. I think though it did, it took a couple of the days for the guys to get used to it because it was such a new thing. But as soon as they saw that I could kick, they did not care. And as it turned out, our like many schools, we had three teams, the varsity, JV, and then a freshman squad. I was a freshman. But the first week of practice, they brought me up to the varsity fields to see how I'd do with the varsity kickers. And I ended up making that team and was our backup varsity kicker as a freshman. And that was scary. But those, the older guys actually were maybe even more cool with having me around. It became something that really was just so normal for us, especially as the years went by. I'd say opposing teams at first were probably rough on me, but my own teammates, they just, I was there to help them win games. So they were, of course, cool with that. Of course. But there's lots of history where even people who could have helped teams weren't allowed to play or were guys or or treated poorly. So it's great to hear. And it's funny to hear the coach say, oh, it's the 90s and thinking back to the 90s. 
how different things were back then. But but you mentioned the opposing players and what so what type of experience did you have with either opposing players or fans or coaches on other teams? Lots of lots of opposing players would just be shocked at first that I was out there. I got hit. Oh God. I don't know how many times my freshman year, but after I'd kicked the ball, I got popped so many times. And actually the first story, the first time I ever got hit is a great story. The guy comes barreling into me and I ended up grabbing him and he came down with me and we both opened our eyes at the same second. And this guy is literally on top of me. And then all of a sudden he's looking into my eyes and he's, oh, holy <laughs> a couple of words I won't say. He goes, yeah. it's a girl. And so he freaks out and starts obviously getting off me and starting to, he's pulling me up and brushing me off and doing stuff. <laughs> there, were, there was stuff like that. And I, I think he was more traumatized than I was. But the interesting thing was too, the teams that we played, we had four years of playing these guys. So they, we all knew each other. It was very, they knew that I was out there because we'd been playing against each other since we were freshmen by the time we were seniors, most of us. And I imagine this all would have been different if it had played out today, just in terms of social media, that they would have known. Oh, so I, yeah, I, man, I can, I can't even imagine to tell you the truth, Gabe. It's, it's just fascinating how that would have changed so much stuff from when we were growing up. Were you surprised by the sort of the treatment on both sides, the, the acceptance from your teammates or the, the sort of heckling or harassment you got from the, the opposing players? Initially, with my high school teammates, I, I think I was incredibly glad that they accepted me. It was a great unknown. Like, how are these guys all going to deal with having a, a female around on the team? And we're talking about 14 to 18-year-old boys there. I think I just was very thankful that they accepted me in and I got to be a part of, the, a part of that team. And I would say a lot of the heckling or harassment that came from our opposing teams died off after my first season and a half because a lot of those players were used to seeing me or knew it despite the fact that we did not have social media word traveled around pretty quickly you got a girl kicker and that was that and you you said that i think it was your longest kick at least at one point, the longest kick was 47 yards in practice. That- 51 when I was 16 in high school, actually. I, uh... And coming back to Jason Elam, everything always comes back to Jason Elam. I, I saw in some video that he chatted with you and it, it still lives on the internet and he seemed to be very supportive. Were there others who reached out to you? At the so time. I think what you're talking about, there is a, I had the opportunity, my senior year of high school happened to be when Jason kicked the record at that point, 63 yard field goal. So the day after I got to go up to the Broncos facility and meet him, they did a little uh, story on us together. And he, I actually, it's hilarious because I don't think that he thought I was going to be able to kick and if you watch the video it's he starts laughing and I'm actually kicking in running shoes of all things and he's holding for me and I'm kicking over soccer goalposts but it was um really fantastic because of course I was idolizing him at that point he's such a great kicker and also such a nice man on top of it and solid person that it was just like this dream come true that I'm out there getting to kick with Jason Elam and then his advice to me is not to change a thing. Does that, you, you really can't beat that. Your idol tells you, hey, don't change a thing. Just keep kicking. So it was uh, great. It was just, yeah, great. That's great. Okay, so now let's move to the, the next 
yeah. chapter and both in terms of your life and then in terms of the terrific book you've written. For those of you who are not familiar with it, still kicking. It's a, it's an incredible read. I recommend that to yeah. everybody listening. And you end up going to University of Colorado, which, which you explain in the book is, you explain, what does it feel like to then go to University of Colorado and get an opportunity to kick? Frankly, it was like a, a dream come true. I knew actually from the time I was 14, first off, I, man, I did. I really, I fell in love with kicking. There was something too that was just so different about it than anything else I've done. And I, I think this may be true actually in all of sports that kicking, being a place kicker, we can compare it to like being a golfer or being a baseball pitcher. You have to stop the comparison somewhere because we really get one shot to go out there and hit it. We don't get to have a bad drive, then make it up with our next wedge putt or whatever. So I though, I loved that. I loved having the pressure on and having to pull a kickoff and 1.3 seconds is really something. Snap to hold the kick. And I thrived with that and loved it. So when I was a freshman, in high school, we were at CU's spring game. And after the spring game, they had, I don't know, little stations of things you could do on the field with the players and the coaches. And they happened to have a little set of goalposts that they were letting people go through. But they also had some real footballs sitting there. And I asked the player who was running that if he would let me kick a real football. And instead of kicking it through the little goalposts, I went for the ones, the actual go post behind him. We were probably about 35 yards out, but it it shocked, you know, everybody around us. And then the next thing you know, they have, they get Rick, Rick Neuheisel over there, who was the head coach at that time, and have him watch me kick. And he cracks a joke on the microphone that he's on to stay in touch because he'll have a scholarship waiting in four years. And uh, from that moment yeah. on, I was just like, oh, God, I, I, I knew I wanted to be the first woman to play Division One football. Yeah, that's awesome. Might have been an NCAA violation, but we won't get into that. Of, of oh, yeah. Uh, that. <laughs> uh, he was just, yeah, I know. I was like, then again, <laughs> probably should never joke about NCAA violations. I do not want to take a stick of gum from the wrong person. So in February of my senior year, Coach Neuheisel, yeah, left for the University of Washington. And so for a month there, it was like a moment of, oh, wow, okay. I already had picked out my dorm at CU. I was set and ready to go. I had met with Coach Neuheisel at that point numerous times and had gone up for their junior recruiting day. So I was comfortable with him. And it was just a shock to have him go. And I, so I'm sitting here thinking, all right, what do I do? Should I be looking at others? schools. I'd had some interest that fall from other universities, but my heart was set on CU. That's where I'd grown up loving this university. And that was, it was just it. Then, yeah, we wait to see who they're going to hire. And it ends up being Gary Burnett from Northwestern, who has some strong CU ties. And I waited probably a month or two for them to get settled and then got in contact and ended up going uh, to meet with their director of football operations. And they said that they were still willing to let me walk onto the team at that point. Obviously, I brought them film and stuff like that. Okay. And then so you walk on and what's the experience like being a member of that team early on and then some of the abuse you faced? I got to tell you, it, it, it really was tough. 18 and I start coming up for workouts that summer. And the very first workout I come up for, 
um, were out running. And during one of the breaks, I have this big surly old lineman come up to me and ask if I'm that girl kicker. And I said, yep. And he said, literally said, get out of here. Girls can't play ball. Girls can't play football. And I was like, that's your first experience with Colorado. Yeah. But you know what I'm thinking? I'm kind of like, so there are going to be a hundred and however many guys on this team. There probably are going to be some who are a handful that are not cool with this. That are not. Yeah. For whatever reason, it just, you get that large of a population. It's probably going to happen. But I was shocked as I joined the team. Some of the things that, that did start happening. I think it started really with a lot of that verbal harassment escalated to physical and then sexual harassment and was just this all all around disaster. And I think I I really truly was caught off guard by that. And there were all these things going on too that you have a new coach coming in. So that transition period, you've got guys who are left who are were considered new Heisel guys. And then you've got new guys, Burnett guys. So it was a a weird atmosphere from that standpoint. And then there's the media and we're trying to figure out how to do this. And I absolutely wanted to be taken seriously, did not want people to think this was a publicity stunt. And so we decided to keep me away from the media my first month and a half on the team. But then we held a press conference and I regret that we did it that way because it, I think it made it into a bigger deal actually. And I didn't like that. Coach Barnett sure didn't like that. I don't Mm -hmm. think my teammates liked that. But we were really in some uncharted territory there of how you deal with this. There had been Kathy Klope suited up at Louisville and I I believe 1995 for a game. And then Heather Sue Mercer, who I know we'll talk about that later, had tried out and played with Duke through their spring season. That was I'm not sure you might be able to correct me on that. That is, that was at the beginning of when I was in high school, maybe. So still the 1995. And so when you're with the team and you've told this story in a column that Rick Riley wrote a number of years ago, but it sounds like you mentioned the first person you talked to told you to get out and then it continued and it got worse. Can you talk a little bit about how it got worse and, and just... Yeah, absolutely. It it started with things like kickers and quarterbacks go out to warm up first. One of our backup quarterbacks took to launching footballs at my head while I was kicking. And it was one of the most insane things to be standing there trying to warm up. And this guy is just chucking footballs at my head. And I, at some point, I told him to knock it off and yelled back at him. And he called me the C word. And it, I, it was, it was like, I didn't even know how to react and I didn't know what I, I was not comfortable at that point approaching coach Barnett. I did not have much of a relationship with him, which being a backup kicker, that could be somewhat the norm, but was very different than what I experienced when I was in high school, where I was always in touch with my coaches and we were, you know, always free to dialogue and um, I think that as some of the abuse got worse, there were times like we would be in a huddle and I would literally have somebody grabbing um, my butt or grabbing me literally in between the legs, sometimes groping at my chest. And we'd be in this mass, so I couldn't tell who was doing what. And 
it it just was just a lot of it felt so surreal and unbelievable. And one of the things that I really struggled with was that a lot of this stuff, as far as the verbal and physical abuse happened when there were people around and nobody said anything about it. No coach. There were coaches I know who had to see what was happening. And so I think I was under so much uh, stress at that point that I was like, oh my God, did they just all think this is okay? Because if they didn't, I assume that somebody would have spoken up and said something. Did you at any point in those early days, were you, were you doubting your decision at all? Or were you hoping it would change? What was your thought process at that time? Yeah, I think that I was hoping that it would change. And I also was really, I struggled an awful lot with my kicking that year between mentally being in a terrible place because of the harassment that was happening and the the pressure that I was feeling from outside sources like the media. And I still, I loved and wanted to try to be a part of this team. I think that I was just so focused on trying to make this work, trying to get my kicking. I'd moved from a tee to off the ground, which uh, a lot of kickers struggle with when we're making that transition. And nowadays they do a lot better. Here, 20 some years later, we have so many more kicking coaches out there in camps compared to when I was in high school. So they get guys moving on that a lot faster than they did during the years when I was playing college, high school and college ball. So I was stressed out about struggling with my kicking and all of these different things, but it was something I really still, there was this determination to to do it. And I don't think I thought about leaving at all. It was more just, you got to get through this. You got to, that you can do this. Let's do it. Yeah. And then to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, can you talk a little bit about then the, the how it escalated from the abuse and the harassment and the groping on the field to something even in more terrible with one of your former teammates? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a little bit of a different situation, though. I had a, a couple of scary times where I had been cornered alone with a player with the way that our complex, our football complex was set up and had players expose themselves to me or one one had pushed me up against a wall and tried to get under my shoulder pads to feel my chest. And fortunately, somebody else did come walking down the stairs at that time and he left me alone. But unfortunately, those instances were a little less common, definitely on a, a higher level than some of the other stuff that was happening. And then, of course, at, at the end of my freshman year, I was raped by one of my teammates. But the thing was, this was actually one of the players who I knew and that I trusted. He was someone that I thought we were friends. I had talked to him about the issues that I was having, struggling with my uh, kicking and with obviously fitting in with the team. And he was someone that I thought I could trust and support, get support from. And yeah, one night during our, at the very beginning of our summer conditioning, I went over to his house to watch a basketball game. And the next thing I know, he's putting his arm around me and red flag goes up in me where I'm like, oh, something's weird. This isn't the kind of relationship we have. And it ends up with him culminating, pushing me down on the couch and ending 
ending up with him him raping me. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I imagine that is difficult. And I know you've talked about this with, with Rick, Rick Riley and others in, in your book, but thank you. And I, I want to talk in a bit about the advocacy work you're doing around these issues. But before we get to that, if you could just talk about what happens next in your experience at Colorado. I did not initially go to the police or the DA. And that was uh, part of the reason for that was where this is the year 2000. And where I was in Boulder, we had a lot of problem with uh, stranger rape. You get a rape whistle when you come to campus. That was something they gave all freshmen. I literally had that rape whistle probably two feet away from me while my own rape was going on. And I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind. I was in such shock. The term date rape was out there, but it made it sound like you went on a date with someone and then they, it, it wasn't like, hey, this is someone that you know, a friend or an acquaintance who is going to do this to you. I just, I, my reaction is different than I ever anticipated it would be. I thought I was one of those people who thought, well, God, of course, if you're raped, the first thing you do is you go to police. And instead, it was just this nightmare experience where the, you know, immediate aftermath was like, I was even sitting here going, this guy is my friend. Is that rape? And then I'm thinking, I said no more than once. That's that's rape. And end up deciding that it's like, God, okay, we've just, you've gone through so much this year. Let's just keep going. And I arranged my schedule to make sure that I would not run into him at all further that summer. And then I did end up leaving CU. Now, I didn't end up going, though, to talk to police or prosecutors until... In 2001, two other women came forward and talked about that they had been raped by members of that football team. And I was gone from CU by then. I was actually living in California, going to a junior college. And as soon as I found out about it, I remember I went and I actually threw up. And it obviously sent me back to my own situation. And I see CU in the news saying, nope, there's no way this could have happened with our players. And we run a really solid program. We respect women. And I'm looking at this and my head feels like it's about to pop off. So at that point, at that point, I was I was also though looking at schools to transfer to. So it was this very weird time for me because I'm thinking like, oh my God, if I start to pursue this or do anything, am I going to be able to play at another school? And I know that might sound really sick, but I really was still determined not to have what I loved taken away from from me there. So I, I think if we fast forward to that, I went, ended up joining the team at New Mexico that next year. And it was there that I had started to get some therapy. I started therapy when I was in California and then further got some at New Mexico and decided as I think another woman came forward. So there ended up being three or so of them who are public. And I knew that I needed to step up and go speak to someone. So I did end up, I connected with my, and actually it was my own football program the people there, my coaches, are the ones who helped connect me to a therapist and also a lawyer in Albuquerque who helped me guide me through this process. So I ended up going and meeting with the Boulder County DA 
And it just was the most shocking conversation. It was very scary to be disclosing this to someone that I didn't know for the first time, really. And sitting there and talking to her about what it would look like if we were to pursue this as a case was a bit of a shocker for me. When we talk about it being a legal system, not a justice system, I think the best thing that illustrates that is the fact that the thing I I still, I have this flashbulb memory of the DA telling me this, that we probably had a 50-50 chance of being able to convict the man who assaulted me. And that actually, those odds are higher than what you usually hear. But then what she said next was what blew me away. She said, even if we convict him, chances are he won't go to jail. And I just, I didn't even know what to think or say at that point, because it was like, how on earth? And I already, too, I was dealing with very severe PTSD at this time. And thankfully, I did have a therapist. I had support from the only a few of my coaches knew, only a handful of my teammates in New Mexico, but they were there supporting me about about that stuff. And just being at New Mexico with my teammates there and having a different experience was very healing. And it was terrifying, though, to sit there and hear that it's okay, so we can give this a shot. We're going to turn your life upside down, though, by the way. I had already watched how a CU had gone after the other victims in terms of trying to discredit them or things. And I think that's also one of the most appalling pieces to this is the way, and it's not uncommon, the way that universities behave to protect their student athletes and those people that are important to them. But actually, this is really interesting because my position coach at that time is at Tulane right now where you are. He is the first coach that I ever told about being assaulted. His name is Jeff Conway. He's your wide receivers coach. Yeah. 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 And I owe him an awful lot because he is the first coach that I told at New Mexico and he got on it. He moved it. He talked to our head coach. He talked to me. He talked to my parents. I'm sorry. I'm actually tearing up a little bit here because it to have someone do that and stand up and support me that way without asking any questions. He just, he believed me right away and he immediately just worked to get me help and to make sure that I was okay. So I will be thankful to him for the rest of my life. And you guys are really lucky to have him there. I'm sorry to go off of tangent. No, not at all. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad and I will certainly pass that along to Jeff. Yeah, definitely. We're actually still in touch here and there. I was when doing this, I was thinking, gosh, I'm gonna have to send him a message and make make sure that I let him know that I'm doing this. But I'm sorry. So cir- circling back, I had a really big decision to make there, and it it really terrified me because I knew also that the man who raped me, he was a gun owner, and he was someone who I still never would have thought he would have been capable of something like rape. And at that point, I was like, I I don't know what he's capable of at all. If I try to go after him, is he going to harm me? Is he going to harm my family? How is the university going to react? And I, I didn't know what to do. I also, one of the things that they talked to me about was that there was a chance that I would have to, wouldn't be able to continue going to school and playing while trial was going on. And that really factored into my decision because it was like, whoa, I'm finally getting a little bit of 
normal life back here and are we going to just take that away? And I, I, I was torn in so many ways, but I also realized that I had a platform and a voice that the other victims did not have. And I truly felt like it was my duty to speak up and say something. It was really hard. It was a unbelievably difficult decision to make. We talk, I talked about it with my parents, but it just, in my heart, I knew it was like, okay, I ended up deciding not to go the legal route and did though share my story. As you mentioned, it was Rick Riley. He had written a column about me for Sports Illustrated when I was a senior in high school. And we had kept in touch. I trusted him a lot. He also is a CU alumni. So I ended up giving him a call and he flew down to Albuquerque and he listened to the entire story and then wrote the column. And then all hell really broke loose after that. And what do you mean by that? Explain some of the reaction and interactions with folks from Colorado and others. Oh, God. Yeah. Gosh, even to start. So I was not able to leave my apartment for about two weeks due to the media onslaught. I did not guess that this, I knew it was going to obviously attract some attention, but I had no idea that it would end up being the media storm that it was. And it was, I would, if I'm honest, coming forward and speaking out about my rape was almost as bad as the rape itself because I had, this is 2004 and I've got, there are people, everybody is basically judging the worst experience of your life. And I've got sports writer, writers writing columns about this that I don't think would ever be written today. I'm being used as an argument of this is why we shouldn't have women on football teams. And of course, I'm sitting there at New Mexico where I had this amazing experience. And I actually think one of the reasons why I was able to come forward and speak about it was because I had the support of that team, that athletics department, that school, that entire community really took care of me through that time. And on the flip side, though, we, you know, had I was getting tons of letters and emails at our athletic department and it got to the point where my my coach had to be getting stuff too because he asked me if it would be okay for them to open my mail and the reason why was because I was getting death threats and getting literal you know, messages of people who were saying that they wanted to harm me or take me up in, into a back alleyway and beat the living shit out of me. And at this point, too, my dad was serving over in Iraq. And my siblings, two of them were still at home with my mom. And they were here in Colorado. And they just they couldn't leave the house for however long. And it was this constant kind of media storm where everyone was being bothered. I think I fared better because I had, again, so much support and protection from my school and from my football team. Can you talk a little bit about the conversations you had with Colorado at that point when the story became public? I did not speak with Colorado directly because of the lawsuits that were going on. And this is very interesting because I think CU was waiting to see if I was going to file a lawsuit. And I did not. Now, this is an interesting piece to the story. We touched on Heather Sue Mercer. We touched on the fact that I went up and I met with our director of football ops my senior year of high school at CU. And during that meeting, Heather Sue Mercer at that point had sued Duke 
And I knew a little bit about it. I probably should have known more considering what I was stepping into. But I really honestly, my football career had just been, it had been great. It had been a blast. I couldn't actually picture it going any other way. Mm -hmm. Uh, While I was sitting in there with that coach, he actually asked me, he said, would you ever file a lawsuit if something went wrong here? And I immediately answered no. And in my head, I'm thinking, what could go so wrong that I would ever file a lawsuit? And my God, little did I know. And I want to focus on your experience in New Mexico and then after that, but but I do want to just, I think this is a good time to to talk about your current advocacy work because let me ask, did, did you get letters from other survivors of oh. assault at that time too? I mean, you mentioned the, the hate mail. Did you get any? Yes. Yeah. This was something that was incredible and it was a good and a bad thing. But we, I received an enormous amount of, of letters and emails from people who were survivors themselves. And there were literally a couple of letters that came taped up in a couple of envelopes where people were disclosing to me what had happened to them that they hadn't told anyone. I think it says a lot about our society at that point. I didn't know, outside of the other women in the CU case, I didn't know anybody who had been raped. I had never... The Central Park jogging victim was maybe the only rape that I really actually ever had heard of and known. So I I think it says a lot that At that time in our society, we really were not talking about how common sexual assault and rape are. And also just the fact that people, the kind of the myths and misconceptions that surround it there. So it was incredible. And I think that all of those letters is what ended up propelling me into my advocacy work that I've done now for for 15 years, basically. As soon as I graduated, I started up and it, it's, it was something that was, I think, healing for me, but also something that I was so passionate about because my own experience was just so hard. And again, though, I think that I was luckier than a lot of victims because of the support that I had, particularly for women who are raped on college campuses by athletes. The fact that I had my own school and my own team standing there to support me was just, it was huge. You don't get that all the time. You don't get a community of people who circle the wagons on you and say, hey, we believe you, which is exactly what my school did for me and my football team. And my teammates were phenomenal. They really stepped it up in a way that was just incredible. And of course, my head coach and my coaches were just all amazing. Those guys, I had players who came and slept on my couch that year sometimes just to make sure that I would feel safe and okay through the night. It's heartening to hear. And it's just, a, I can't help but wonder if you hadn't had the support of your high school teammates and the community that how many and how many other women and girls don't have that or didn't have that support. And yeah, I think you're 100 percent right on that. I I think because it it was hard enough and took me a couple of years after I came forward to really be okay. I dealt with very strong PTSD. It felt like I almost started all over again, that all the progress that I had made in therapy, it felt like we were starting back at zero. 
And then we were having to address other things too, because I was naive in the fact that I knew CU was not going to be happy with me. But I also was, I didn't think that they could attack me the same way that they were attacking the other women because they're was no alcohol involved. There wasn't a party. There were no, this was a one-on-one incident with me and a teammate. I was uh, a virgin. I was like, there's no way they're going to be able to dig up my sexual past because I don't have one. And I, I can't believe actually how naive I was because since I didn't have a sexual past, they just decided to make stuff up. And there, none of this stuff ever got printed in newspapers because nobody would go on record saying it. But there was a very strong amongst CU fans and message boards and here in Colorado, things that were spread about me saying that I was a slut, that I was, God, you know, made out with all these guys on our our football team. And the worst was that I had done topless lap dances in a hot tub. And it took me a long time to figure out where something like that even how somebody would even get the idea for that and i finally figured out that it was because of our bowl game the insight.com bowl that we played in and yeah we had gone swimming there but i was not even comfortable enough to be in a bikini around my teammates so i had my football shorts on so how that ever translated to some of the just i'll be honest it was lies and crap that was unbelievable that was spread. And that that is something that is very common that they try to do with rape victims all the time is to say she was uh, promiscuous or she's a slut or she's a... And it's funny because as I've come along and as I've worked in this area, I've realized that, gosh, even if I had made out with every single player on the football team, it still doesn't mean that somebody... It's okay that somebody raped me that it's just no is no no matter who you are whether it's a wife or someone who's a sex worker if they say no that's it you're done and so can you talk a little bit more about the advocacy work that you've you mentioned you've done for about 15 years and the different audiences that you've had for that yeah absolutely i, I think i was uh, very lucky coming out that i got to immediately step in and and begin working. And it it started with a little bit of work in Washington and just meeting and working with all the different nonprofits who do address violence against women. And I started speaking at colleges because that was really a place, it is really a place where we still have a giant problem with rape and sexual assault between those ages are between 18 and 22 are extremely high-risk times for being a rape or a sexual assault victim. I also would speak to athletic teams. Uh, A few years ago, ended up partnering with Major League Baseball. The Ray Rice situation happened in 2015 with the NFL. And I think as soon as all these professional sports leagues saw the backlash that the NFL had and received, because it was shocking to see in real time on video, a man punching his partner in the face. A lot of leagues knew that they needed to step up and make sure that they were addressing this problem with their own players. So I actually ended up working for Major League Baseball for quite a few years because they mandated that 
They wanted everyone trained, not just their players, but their front offices and their scouts and their minor league teams to have them trained in anti-violence, anti-child abuse. Thank you for all the work that you do. And it's we try to make it a focus here at Tulane. I know a lot of schools are doing in the NCAA focusing on violence against women. And so I, I, it's, you know, if there's a positive to come out of your story and what you had to go through, I'm glad you've made a positive and the impact you're making now on, on women and the knowledge that we have and how important it is to have this information and to feel that you're educated and protected and comfortable. Thank you for everything that you do and continue to do. And I, I want to shift gears back now to New Mexico and your experience being a kicker, as you mentioned, on a team mm-hmm. that embraced you. And and also, as you said, I think your kicking became better, too, which would not seem to be a coincidence that you're in a better situation and your kicking becomes better. You talk about the moment where you're on the field and you have the chance to be the first woman to kick, to score point for a division, what we used to call Division 1A. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens? Because like, we talked about whether this is sort of movie like the natural, and it maybe this is a movie story that, it, but it happens like thirty minutes before the movie ends. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my first season at New Mexico, my head coach is this just tough as nails man named Rocky Long. And he is, he's just something else. He's a guy who would be down in the weight room with us and would like work in sets with our linebackers. He's, he, at, when I was playing, he's like in his fifties and we've got our coach just popping over and doing some power cleans with us. We were, he really was a, a tough guy and really defined our, our team. We were a very tough and physical football team. But in very typical Rocky Long style, he comes over to the kickers after we warmed up, doesn't actually address me, addresses our starting kicker. And he says, hey, Kenny, let Katie take the first kick. And I was actually really surprised. I had no idea that was coming. And I knew and was was very, very jittery to to say the least. And it here it is this moment that I've been working for eight years. And at that point, this was 2002. So it was before I'd gone public with everything that had happened at CU. And nobody really knew everything that I had gone through to get to that moment. And then I go in and my kick ends up being blocked. And oh, man, it was a, a, a bit of a surreal experience. And it was devastating for me as an athlete. And oh, God, immediately then, too, I was so worried that I had just let the entire female race down by having that kick block. And sure enough, you know, next day in the Los Angeles Times, there is a opinion article with a giant headline that says women should not be on the football field. Katie Knight had just proved why. And fortunately, again, this is where I got lucky was my coach and my teammates came to my defense there. And when my coach was asked about putting me in, if he regretted it, he said, no, it was my decision. It was a great decision. And that's it. First kick attempt is blocked. It's as I imagine anyone who's worked their their life to for that moment, and then, as you said, you just get a, it's a few seconds of of panic, and mm-hmm. you, you get, <laughs> it gets blocked. But you bounce back, and you do make history. So, can you talk about 
the moment where you yeah actually it's truly gave this is this is great and this is going to tell you guys exactly how my experience was at new mexico my teammates knew how hard i took that blocked kick and i was that off season man did i work harder than i ever had in my whole life because i knew that i needed to be ready if i was going to ever get another opportunity and so our very first game we're playing texas state and oh god it's a <laughs> just nightmare of a night because it's raining and pouring at halftime i go in and don't just double up my long sleeves i like triple them and i'm soaked to the bone by the fourth quarter and all of a sudden, yeah, Coach Conway appears and he's, Katie, you've got the next extra point. And we were up by, I, I don't know, like 50 points at that time. And I was like, oh, holy crap. And so I start warming up on, on the sidelines and go in, hit my first extra point. It was, there was, I think, a feeling of relief, but there was also a lot of, there was also a lot of joy. I, I watched, I got to watch it the other day and the way that my holder was with me and then my old line comes back and just everyone. And the next day I find out I had no idea about this. I open up the paper and the lead story is that, yeah, I made history. The players made it happen. And I'm looking at that going, what? And it turns out that my teammates were the ones who rallied for me to get in. Guy, One of our defensive safeties says to Coach Long in the fourth quarter, is this going to be the game where Katie gets to make history? And Coach Long turned to him and said, no, <laughs> you know, brushed him off. And he didn't let up. And then the next thing he knew, Coach Long was quoted saying he had 20 guys starting to push him on the sidelines. And they are the ones who ended up getting me into that game. And I apologize. I really, I <laughs> can't believe I'm so emotional about this, but it just... Sometimes I realize how incredibly lucky I was to have that. Uh, the, these guys are just, they're still some of the most important people in my life to this day. It's an incredible story. And again, not, not to keep coming back to this point, but it's, it is movie-like in just the, the players rallying, your teammates rallying around you. And, and I, oh man, I can't even tell you. I read that and I just about, I knew I got along with the guys so well and we were a team and we were really a tight team. And, but it just, it's sometimes it, it blows my mind to think about the difference between CU and New Mexico. And actually, if I can mention something here about my kicking, I still was struggling a lot at New Mexico with my kicking. And actually it was coach Conway who grabbed me. And this is how I ended up telling him about what happened at Colorado. He pulled up some film of me kicking there at New Mexico and then pulled film of me kicking in high school and where I, on the recruiting tape that I had sent out. And he pointed out, he's like, all right, what's going on here with your form? He goes, you're like crunching as if you're trying to protect yourself while you're kicking the football. And in general, when you kick a football, particularly for me, it's like you hit the ball and your body opens up. And instead of opening it up, I was like shielding myself and crunching as if trying to protect myself. And I remember looking at him and just being like, oh God. And that's when he started me with uh, my uh, position. Coach Conway started me with a sports psychologist first. And then that was what 
sort of uh, was a catalyst to tell him about what had happened. The irony of me trying to protect myself while I was kicking, it was almost like what had happened to me at CU was manifesting in my kicking. It's incredible. It's And it's incredible that the coach was there for you like that. And then just to contrast, and I, I don't want to put you in the position to, to criticize him, but I think it is an important part of this story to relay what Gary Barnett said as this mm-hmm. became public. And the, the quote was, if it, it was obvious Katie was not very good, she was awful. You know what guys do. They respect your ability. You can be 90 years old, but if you can go out and play, they'll respect you. Katie was not only a girl, she was terrible. Okay. There's no other way to say it. Yeah. And, and so, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, obviously very different than what, but I think this goes back to team dynamic too. And where that comes from is up there at the top. There are two different things that come to mind whenever I hear that. One is both coaches, Coach Long and Coach Burnett, had meetings with the team before I joined them. Now, the kickers at CU told me that Coach Barnett sat them all down and that it really was more of a, yeah, guys, we're all stuck with this. We're just going to have to deal with it. So that mentality immediately started from that top. And I think that absolutely impacted the players. Coach Long, on the other hand, I know the guys, we used to joke about it because his was a very short speech where he said at the end of a team meeting, oh, by the way, we're going to have a woman on our team. You will treat her the exact same way that you treat every other person on this team with respect. And that was it. I mean, he did two lines, but the guys really listened there. And I think, though, Coach Long, the best thing about his coaching mentality was the fact that he stressed that we were all important and not just those of us on the team, but that the people that helped make our program run and made us able to play football were people like our equipment staff and our trainers, you know, athletic managers. And so for him, he made sure that it was like, you're treating your fourth string linebacker the same way you're treating the starting quarterback, the same way you're treating our head trainer. And that's with respect. He didn't take, I remember once a guy chucked a water bottle at one of the student athletic trainers and was rude about it, mouthed off. And when Coach Long found out about it, it was just like that, that wasn't acceptable at all in our program. And that player was put on the Stairmaster for a very long and unpleasant time. We need more Coach Longs in the world, not just in sports, but just generally. Yeah, tell me about uh, and just the last couple of quick points that so that was in 2003 when you made your two kicks right. and it's now 2021 this year which then brought all mm-hmm. this back into the four and so i guess two related question is one how much do you talk to whether it was sarah or some of the other female kickers is there a little club support group do you yeah sarah's situation was a little bit different because they pulled her very quickly it was like everything happened within a week but take for example april goss who was the second woman to score in a division one football game she was up at kent state and i think it was 2015 when she kicked so really a long time after me we're talking at least a decade But I had met her beforehand because I actually had spoken at Kent State, did a a 
speech there. And she came with a bunch of their football team. And then she and I just kept in touch because it, it is, it's a unique thing. And it was just a, a pleasure to be able to be there for just nobody else really knows what it's like. So we've been friends now for five or six years. And she's someone that I can just call and pick up the phone with and we get each other. And she had a very similar experience at Kent State with her teammates and coaches as I did at New Mexico. And I am grateful for that every single day. And and so that was, I think, 2015. So uh, as you said, more than a decade after you had done it. And that's Sarah Fuller, which is just because of, of COVID and roster mm-hmm. issues, that was an emergency. Why do you think there haven't been more female kickers at the FBS level? And particularly when you consider we have the best women's soccer team in the world. And yeah. we have talent in terms of the extent that there is a, it translates from soccer to, to football kicking. Why do you think more? I think it does, but it, it also doesn't. Kicking a football is really different than kicking a soccer ball. I think you do see a lot of kickers with soccer backgrounds, but it's not like every soccer player can be a kicker. You really do have to train for it and have a knack. Even with Vanderbilt, the way they uh, picked Sarah Fuller, the head coach down there, Derek Mason at the time, and talked to, he was friends with the women's soccer coach. So they sat down and it was like, what are the best chances of someone who's a soccer player being able to kick a football and decided that Sarah was probably their best choice as a goalie, that her leg was going to be the strongest and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think though, It does play a role because during, I was going to say, on the other hand, though, it does play a role because a lot of high school girls are playing soccer and also doing some kicking at the same time. And a lot of what we've seen in the past decade or two is that many of them go on and end up playing soccer in college instead of football because you can, you know, get a soccer scholarship much easier than a division one football scholarship, especially as a kicker. So we see a little bit of that happening. And I also do think of the mentality of playing Division One football, it still is not 100% supportive of having things that are, quote unquote, disruptive or even just different. So I think that's something in the culture that is there. But then you look at my experience at New Mexico, you look at April, and it's absolutely possible. And I actually think it's actually a side benefit to that is I think it's beneficial to the entire team, actually. Like the guys at New Mexico, obviously they didn't just accept me, they embraced me. And we've talked a lot as we've gotten older and with my coaches, just that what it was like having a female presence out there and how that shifted our dynamic just enough, just a little bit. And was a a valuable thing that we had on that team. And it's such an important lesson. I just think generally the, the value of diversity in any organization. Yeah. And, and oh, for sure. You can't, the, the more diversity you have, the better. I'm really excited to see that we have so many women cracking through in the NFL coaching. I think that's fantastic. And only good things are going to come from having more diversity there. They need, they need it with women and they need it with minorities too. We th- That's obviously something else that is another separate issue, but something that football needs to work on is we have a really sad number of 70% of NFL players are black men and how many 
NFL coaches do we have? It, Three. It, <laughs> it's yeah. not impressive. Yeah, we got a ways to go there. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for taking the time and for your honesty. I know this is difficult to talk about and I, I appreciate it. And thank you for being a trailblazer on the field and for all the work you do off the field in educating athletes and college athletes. Uh, so we need more coach longs in the world. We, we need more Katie Nagy's in the world. Too. So, oh, thank you. Gosh, that you humble me. Thank you for having me on and thank you for giving me a chance to talk about all this because I think it, it is important. I hope that one of, one of the coolest things about seeing Sarah out there, seeing the young girls that she's impacted and getting to watch that in real time now is something that makes me really proud. And knowing that I was able to do that however many years ago is it, it's just such a it's a humbling thing. And it's really cool. I feel really lucky to have this platform. So I appreciate you letting me use it and hope that I can use it for good stuff, moving our society along. Absolutely. And keep up the great work, be well, and hopefully we can have you down in person at, at Tulane and you can reconnect with, with Coach Yeah, Bond. I thought about that. I'm going to get down and visit you guys. So That'd be great. That'd be great. All right. Thank you, Katie. I really appreciate thank it. You so much. I appreciate it. Be well. And thank you all for listening. Please remember, go to Apple Podcasts, download the pod, Give it five stars and you'll feel much better about yourself. Thanks as always to my sponsor, RitVest. As the weather starts to turn warm around the country, there's no better time to turn to RitVest. See you next time between the lines. You're an all-American and our captain act like it. I believe I am.